Romans chapter one. In verse 16, we read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it. That is the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Last week, I concluded my message with verses 16 and 17 and gave the following outline from W. Griffith Thomas's classic sermon outlines on the book of Romans. He wrote, number one, that the source of the gospel is God. And number two, the nature of the gospel is power. And number three, the purpose of the gospel is salvation. And number four, the scope of the gospel is for everyone. And number five, the reception of the gospel, the believers. Number six, the efficiency of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And number seven, The outcome of the gospel, the just shall live by faith. And remember what I reminded you, these two verses are the heart and soul of the book of Romans. It is the theme of the book of Romans. Every single word Paul writes from this point forward to the end of the book, as you go through chapters two and three and four and seven and 15, and you come all the way to the end of the book, every single paragraph is written to support these two verses. We not only see into the heart of the book of Romans itself, but also into the heart and soul of the Apostle Paul. We're given a brief and fleeting glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God. We're given ever so brief a look at salvation and faith and what Paul means by that pregnant word righteousness. So Paul will speak of the gospel. And remember what the gospel is. Good news. Glad tidings in the ancient world, it carried with it the added dimension of excitement and joy. As you can imagine, news falls into several categories, news that is whispered, news that is spoken in a somber tone, news that insists on being shouted. The kind of news that insists on being shouted, of course, includes I'm engaged. I'm getting married. We're having a baby. My mother, my father, my brother, my sister has recovered from a life threatening illness. We all know about news that it comes in the form of things that are difficult and things that we rejoice in. Paul separated to the gospel of God, he says in verse nine. In the gospel of his son, it's called in verse 15, he says, I'm ready to preach the gospel and his unapologetic statement in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel and for good reason, because this is what saves us. This is what redeems us. This is what reconciles us. And Paul, of course, says it's the power of God to everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in the case of the gospel of Christ, it means to 
proclaim to all the complete salvation and rescue from sin available only through Jesus, the eternal son of God who died on the cross of Calvary. The gospel finds its origin in God and its power in God and its dynamic force through the power of the Holy Spirit, who effectively convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. It says in John chapter 16, verses eight through 11. As a matter of fact, John or Paul Stromberg Reese put it this way. The gospel is neither a discussion nor a debate. It's an announcement. But for many people, all it is is a discussion. And a never ending debate. As people wonder, is it true? Let's look at the source of the gospel. Look at verse 16 again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God. Remember, Paul writes that the source of the gospel is God himself. This flies in the face of every argument that it is man-made, that human beings created religion in order to satisfy some longing in their soul. The philosophical naturalist will say, guess what? Human beings are hardwired. There's something in our genes. There's something in our genetic makeup that makes us want to worship God. But nothing could be further from the truth because the Bible says exactly the opposite, that God placed eternity in your heart. So guess what? The gospel isn't man-made. Guess what? The gospel isn't genetically motivated. Repentance is a divine gift, it says in Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they became silent concerning the, the power of the Holy Spirit to fall upon the Gentiles. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. God brings about repentance. God brings about regeneration. So how does the father work in salvation? We're promised salvation by God on the basis of what Jesus has done. Remember what it says in the most famous verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God planned the gospel before the foundation of the earth. God provided salvation in the form of his son and the infinite power of God is able to save us and then keep us. And the infinite love of God not only accounts for God's eternal purposes, but assures us that his eternal purpose will be fulfilled. Let me be blunt and let me be simple. God planned the gospel. God created humanity and this universe and everything in it to bring to human beings the place where that they would understand and embrace the gospel. So salvation is the plan of God, not man. Salvation is the sacrifice of the son, not self. Salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. So guess what? It isn't a work of man by will or wonder. The Holy Spirit provides regeneration or the new birth, which every believer partakes in. 
It becomes an irreversible process as the work of God comes upon us and changes us and continues to change us throughout this experience that we call the Christian life. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit brings about the transformation until we come to the day of redemption, the day of translation, the day of resurrection, when your body is changed forever. And so, since the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the work of God and signifies the safety and the security of the one sealed until God completes his purpose in the believer, when he presents you before his throne faultless, we see the salvation of the believer is the work of God. It's the plan of God and the work of God. That means it can't be a human work. And so we see the nature of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Since Paul reveals that the source of salvation is God, and that the source of salvation and the gospel is the power of God, I want you to pause for just a moment. And I want you to remember who this book is being written to. Rome. Rome is the capital of the most important empire at that time. Rome is the military power and the economic power and the political power and is drawing cultural power from all four corners of its empire. Paul will contrast the strength and the power of Rome with the power of God's gospel. Human beings can accomplish a great deal and powerful empires can accomplish a great deal. But the power of Babylon and the power of Greece and the power of Persia and the power of Rome couldn't save a single sinner, couldn't wash your soul clean. You see, the truth is human beings are in trouble. And no matter how powerful the government, no matter how powerful the empire, no matter how weak or strong the culture in which you live, it's God's power that saves. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. The power of the gospel lies in its origin, God. By the way, the word power is familiar to most of us. It's the Greek word dunamis. Our words dynamic, dynamo are related to the word in the ancient culture, it meant strength or ability. It meant the inherent power, the power that resides in something by virtue of its nature. A lion is different from a lamb by virtue of its nature. And this is the kind of power that is infinite because its origin is the infinite God who exerts his infinite power to bring his salvation to mankind. And so in one sense, the gospel contains all the inherent power that's contained in the God who conceived it and willed it and prepared it and accomplished it. And so that becomes the answer to the question, how do I know that the gospel can save me? How do I know that the gospel can change me? How do I know that the gospel can cleanse me? How can I know that it can make my mind different and my heart different and my life different and my behavior different? Because it's not you making a decision to change. It's God 
making the powerful ability for things to be different inside of your heart. So he talks about the nature of the gospel and then he talks about the purpose of the gospel, salvation. The Greek word is soteria. In my Bible, I have a note. The Hebrew and Greek words for salvation imply the idea of deliverance and safety, preservation and healing and soundness. Salvation is the great inclusive word of the gospel gathering unto itself all its redemptive acts and processes as justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification and glorification. You're probably wondering, how does he get all of that in his Bible just as a note? It's been there for a long time. There's a great Greek help. It's called Kittles. It's 16 volumes and it covers every single Greek word in the New Testament. And some very intelligent people have thought long and hard about these words. Sanday and Hedlam write about the word salvation. The fundamental idea contained in soteria, that's salvation, is the removal of dangers that are menacing to life and the consequent placing of life in conditions favorable to free and healthy expansion. So it begins with the idea that you need to go somewhere in a particular direction, but there are obstacles along the way. For the sinner, the huge obstacle of sin becomes a stumbling block. As you wake up in the morning and as you live your life throughout the day. In the Old Testament, salvation could mean deliverance from a physical peril. When it was applied to the nation of Israel, it meant deliverance from her enemies. It came to include the idea of the promises of God given in a messianic deliverer. The promises of God in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to make a way for sin and redemption and reconciliation. In Genesis 3, God gave Adam and Eve a promise that the woman would bear a son. In Genesis chapter 22, as Abraham takes his son Isaac to the Mount of Moriah and the son asks, Isaac asks, Where are we going to find a sacrifice? And Abraham replies, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. It became a promise that generations would hold on to. I need you to understand the point of this. The point becomes the question that each and every one of you should have asked at least sometime in your life. How am I going to get rid of the problem of sin in my life? It was a question that Adam and Eve asked and Abraham asked and Isaac asked and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and David asked. It was a question that we ask and we begin to answer it when we say God made a promise in the person of Jesus to provide the answer. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We're not going to go to hell. We are saved from the power of sin. Sin no longer has to rule us. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. You will be taken out of this life and placed into another life where you won't be exposed to sin anymore. 
And so Paul talks about the scope of the gospel for everyone. This is good news for the whole world, for everyone. Who does that include? Jew and Gentile. Who else does that include? Black and white. Whether you're living in Central or South America or North America. If you go to the top of the world in Antarctica and you make your way all the way to the south and you make your way all the way across the globe, you come to Sweden and Norway and Europe, you come to North Africa and Central Africa and South Africa, you go back up to India and Asia, every place where human beings occupy the planet, the gospel is for everyone. And so for the person who says Christianity is for White people, they couldn't be more wrong. Christianity is for sinners. This is why Christians from the beginning sought to share the gospel with everyone. This is why those who embrace Jesus believe there's only one Savior and there's only one gospel. There may be many ways to preach that gospel. There might be ways to present the gospel. There might be a lot of approaches to evangelism. But Jesus is the only God-man. Jesus is the only ransom for sinners. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And this bothers some people. It bothered me. I thought, how can Christians be so exclusive? How can they be so narrow-minded? Surely there must be lots of ways to come to God. But God knew how stupid and selfish we really are. God knew that if there were two ways or three ways or four ways or five ways or ten ways, somebody would want 20 ways or 200 ways or 300 ways. God made it simple. You don't have to choose between door number one and door number two and door number three. You don't have to make the choice. You don't have to sweat bullets wondering, did I make the right choice or the wrong choice? There's only one door that's marked redemption, salvation, forgiveness. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. He characterized himself as the door. So how many people on the earth have yet to be evangelized? According to some people who keep count, there are some seven plus billion people. According to mission groups, there are 2,500 groups of people who have their own identity, their own culture, their own language, who remain unevangelized. The truth is. Every single person who has yet to hear the gospel remains a witness and a rebuke to me and to you. It's a rebuke to the church because Jesus said, go into all the world. People have made incredible strides into going into all the world. The gospel has been translated into All of the major languages in the world that occupy about 90% of everybody who lives on the planet Earth. Last week on my radio program, I had a man who spent 20 plus years of his life preparing to go to Borneo to reach a group of people and to begin to translate the Bible. And in order to do it, he had to live among them, learn their language, create an alphabet system and then translate the Bible into that language. 
Some people will say, well, people have hardened their heart to the gospel. They don't really want to hear about Jesus. But I'm here to tell you something. There's an unprecedented receptivity to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Missionaries continue to make their way into all the continents of the globe. It is true that in the United States of America, there are people who have been saturated with the gospel. And they have no love for Jesus. And they have no desire to know the Lord. But guess what? That's not true everywhere. There are people in Africa who long for a Bible. There are people in Muslim countries who are hearing the gospel and responding to it. And thanks to the Internet and the electronic witness, the gospel has been prepared so that even the most hardened, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, secularist can go online and hear the gospel and respond to it. There remain unreached people groups and tribal groups. Do you realize that if just 2,000 of the largest churches in the world dedicated themselves to going to one particular people group, every single unreached people group would be reached. In the 1970s, when I was in school, the Lausanne Covenant met and they put a sense of urgency of reaching the entire world, they wrote, quote, the goal should be by all available means and at the earliest possible time that every person will have the opportunity to hear, understand and receive the good news. We cannot hope to attain this goal without sacrifice. All of us are shocked by the poverty of millions and disturbed by the injustices which cause it. Those of us who live in affluent circumstances accept our duty to develop a simple lifestyle in order to contribute more generously to both relief and evangelism. And the task continues. So we see the scope of the gospel, everyone, but look at the reception of the gospel to everyone who believes. Jesus invited his disciples to believe him. In John 11, you'll remember in verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, those who believe in me, even if they were dead, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In John 8, remember, he told the religious leaders, unless you believe that I am who that I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. And you'll remember when Paul and Silas were Taking the gospel into Macedonia, they arrived in Philippi, they were arrested and beaten, they were thrown into prison, they were praying and singing, the prisoners were listening to them, suddenly an earthquake shook the prison, doors and gates were opened, the keeper of the prison woke up and seeing that the doors were open and that the chains were gone, he took a sword and he was getting ready to kill himself. Paul told him not to harm himself. He reminded them that they were still there. And the jail keeper asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. When the religious workers asked Jesus what they must do to be saved, he said, believe in the one that God has sent Augustine warned his generation about only believing bits and pieces of the gospel. 
Even in his day, people wanted to believe the moral instructions of Jesus. Or they wanted to believe the great stories of Jesus. But they were reluctant to believe the gospel. That they were sinners in need of a savior. Augustine wrote, If you believe in the gospel what you like, and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe. It's your own self. You see, the gospel, remember, wasn't made up by human beings, not even by you. You can't make up what you think is God's provision. God has revealed it in the person of his son, Jesus. Joseph Fort Newton wrote, belief is truth held in the mind. Faith is fire in the heart. I like that. Truth held in the mind. Fire in the heart. Blaise Pascal, who is very much quoted and very rarely understood, wrote, There are three roads to belief. Reason, habit, and revelation. He's exactly right. Belief comes through your brain. You reason the circumstances that you find yourself in. You ask questions and expect answers. It is true that we can believe what we choose. God has given you that right. You have the ability to choose or choose otherwise. But we're answerable for what we choose to believe. I think you know that. I think placed deep within each person's heart, whether they claim to be an atheist or a skeptic or an agnostic, is this feeling, this feeling that one day, They will die and they will have to stand before God and give an account of their life. And so we see the efficiency of the gospel. Look at the beginning of verse 17. Look what it says. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Here, Paul answers the question, what does the the gospel do? And of course, it reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel provides not only a revelation of what God wants to do. The gospel provides a right standing before God for those who trust God from start to finish. Each individual must accept Jesus by faith and then each must live their Christian lives by faith. And so when it says for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed The word righteousness is going to be an important word that we're going to visit over and over and over again in the epistle of Romans. The Greek word is di, kaio, sine. It's the key word of the epistle. Di, chaos. One Bible writer, Kremer, defines it as that which is right. That which is conformable. To what is right. He continues in its scriptural sense, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Righteousness is the state commanded by God and standing the test of his judgment. The character and acts of man approved of him. That's God in virtue of which the man corresponds with him and his will as his ideal and standard. Let me put it to you differently. We might think of this as rightness. In other words, righteousness is rightness. And so righteousness isn't a 60s term that means right on. Right. That's righteous, dude. 
That's not the biblical meaning of the word. It is rightness revealed by God, defined by God, and demanded by God, and then given by God. So here, righteousness isn't simply an attribute of God, though it is. It is a righteousness that God bestows on the person who trusts Jesus. Because in order to understand the question, what does God want from me? Haven't you ever asked that question? What does God want from me? What does God want from me? And you've already heard me say, well, God wants you to believe in Jesus. Yeah, so far so good. Why does God want you to believe in Jesus? I want you to think this through. Because God sees you. Either complete or incomplete. Incomplete if you're in your sin. Corrupt if you're in your sin. If your righteousness is your ability to do that which is right and acceptable to God, then we are all disqualified. So for the person who says, well, what does God want? He wants perfection. And you're thinking, well, then nobody is right before God. Yes, yes, you understand. Yes. Good, you're starting to connect the dots. God cannot accept anyone apart from Christ. Why? Because God can only accept perfection. Why? Because God is holy. It may come as a shock and a surprise to you, but any single sin disqualifies you from heaven. And so this is the kind of righteousness that seems to flow out of God and then is given to the believer. And Paul elsewhere talks about it like a robe that you get to put on. You put off the dirty clothes of your old life and you put on the clean clothes of a new life in Christ. So what does Paul mean when he writes from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith? I'm going to suggest to you that I suspect that it means from faith to faith means that you go from a lesser faith. To a greater faith. You go from something that's small and it gets larger and larger and larger. In what way? The Bible says to each individual um, has been given a measure of faith, according to Paul in the book of Romans. Each individual is given a measure of faith. In what sense? Each person is given a measure of faith by God to believe. What? In the reality in which they live, in the existence itself. Each person is given a measure of faith. You have a measure of faith if you can come to the conclusion that the famous philosopher did. I think, therefore I am. If you are listening to this message, if you're sitting in a chair or sitting in your car, if you can pinch yourself real quick and go, wait, wait a minute. Yeah, I do. Ooh, that's me. I have a central nervous system. Of course, if you're a paraplegic and you just pinched yourself and you're laughing, I'm talking about people who have a central nervous system, but if you're listening, that means that some part of your central nervous system is still working. You've been given a measure of faith. If you come to the conclusion that reality exists, you've been given a measure of faith. If you believe that there's a God, you've been given a measure of faith. If you ask the question, what kind of God is God? 
and you move from faith to faith, your faith becomes small and then it gets larger and larger and larger as you ask and answer questions and get important answers like, well, if there is a God and he can speak and he can communicate. And if that God has spoken to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and if God who speaks to us in the person of Jesus Christ has given us a message that he loves us and that he cares for us and that he's willing to forgive us and redeem us and reconcile us, then you're moving from from lesser faith to greater faith to greater faith. Again, I suspect we start with a small quantity. It grows into a larger quantity that is intense and expanding. I read this week. When Martin Luther was searching for God for a long time, he thought that the righteousness of God was a condemning righteousness and seeing the righteousness of God as God's standard of judgment would sometimes drive him to despair However, little by little, he began to understand. And finally, the day came when he saw that God gives his own righteousness to make man righteous through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's what it says in John 3.22. And Luther's life was turned upside down in the library of Rudolstadt, Germany. There's a glass case that holds a letter written by Luther's youngest son, Dr. Paul Luther. It reads, quote, In the year 1544, my dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the spirit of Jesus, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way. As he repeated prayers on the Lateran staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly into his mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers. He returned to Wittenberg, took this as his chief foundation for all of his doctrine, unquote. And guess what? He hammered 95 thesis on a door and the Protestant revolution was born and a group of people awakened and a generation awakened. To the fact that God saves people through Christ by faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes the prophecy of Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. The prophet Habakkuk was writing to a rebellious people who had turned their back on God. The Lord, the true God, the God of the Old Testament, the God who is the true God who created all things. The holy God, the sin-hating Lord, the loving Lord has chosen to act toward us in righteousness. In what way? Where all of his holy and righteous claims can be satisfied and solved. What does Habakkuk say? It can be solved if you will believe the promises of God. What was the promise of God? The promise of God to Eve, the promise of God to Noah, the promise of God to Abraham, the promise of God to David. As you begin to link all of these prophecies and promises together, the reoccurring message is 
I love you and I'm going to make a way for you. I love you and I'm going to create a plan for you. I love you and I'm going to take care of the problem of your heart. I'm going to take care of the problem of your sin. I'm going to take care of the problem of your redemption. God is satisfied. For those who will, with complete honesty and trust, believe his promises and accept his substitute. That's the son, Jesus. So faith is used in a number of different ways in the scripture. It includes the idea of understanding. It includes the idea of knowledge. It says in Psalm 910, and they that know your name will trust you. In Romans 10:17, Paul will later write, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith isn't believing something absent evidence. Faith isn't a blind leap in the dark. Faith isn't casting your brain to the wind. Faith is rooted and grounded in evidence. Faith is rooted and grounded in reality. Faith is rooted and grounded in. In revelation, in what sense? A real God reveals himself and speaks to us in the person of Jesus. Faith isn't believing something absent the evidence. Faith is believing something in spite of your sin and your wickedness. You know, it's come to my attention that even atheists and agnostics have moments of doubt where they wonder with all of their heart, what if I'm wrong? What if religion isn't some sort of ideology? What if religion isn't some sort of genetic code? What if religion is a revelation of God to a group of people about their sinful condition that satisfied it in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? By the way, there really is no such thing as believing in the heart, but rejecting in the head. There is no such thing as believing in the heart and rejecting in the head. What do I mean? Because the heart in the scripture speaks of the whole person, the intellect, the sensibility, the will. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is, says Jesus. Why do you reason this way in your heart, says Jesus? Faith is something believed, something that we assent to. It's not just mere knowledge, but it's knowledge coupled with a commitment. A Unitarian Universalist student once asked Frederick Buckner what he believed in about faith. When Buckner asked him faith in what? His answer was, I have faith in faith, writes Buckner. I don't mean to disparage him. He was doing the best that he could. But it struck me that having faith in faith was as barren as saying, I'm in love with love. I want money in order to have money. By the way, if you collect coins, the truth is you will never be broke. But back to Buckner. He writes, it struck me, too. That to attend a divinity school, he was at Harvard, when you don't even believe in divinity, involved a peculiarly depressing form of bankruptcy. And there were times as I wandered through those corridors that I felt a little like Alice on the far side of the looking glass. That must be what it's like to be an unbeliever or make believer and make your way into a church. And sit down in a chair 
and you've got a Bible and you're listening to a guy and you, you don't even for the life of you go, what, what am I doing listening to this person? I don't believe this nonsense. And then something awakens inside of your soul. A question inside of your head. But what if it's true? What if sinners really do need a savior? The Christian journey begins in faith, faith in Jesus, continues in faith, a walk with Jesus, ends in faith, believing Jesus. Thomas Merton wrote, ultimately, faith is the only key to the universe, the final meaning of human existence. And the answers to the questions on which all our happiness depends can't be found any other way, unquote. So Paul will present the gospel. The truth of the gospel, never intending to be the domain of the human head, but always meant to be lived in the human heart and the human life. You see, the gospel of Jesus is never, ever divided by what you think and how you live. It's always united. The idea is that the way you think will incorporate the way you live. Susanna Wesley told her children, there are two things that you do with the gospel. The first is believe it. The second is behave it. This with a woman with 13 children. Believe it and behave it. Chuck Swindoll writes, when we freely receive the salvation God has provided through Christ, we come under the full benefits of his undeserving grace. However, if we choose not to avail ourselves of the gospel then we remain under God's wrath and condemnation. The choice is left to each one of us to make. But we cannot fail to make the choice. And each one of us will. We'll believe it or we won't. We'll receive it or we won't. And if you make the decision, I'm not ready to make the decision. Guess what? The very fact that you make the statement, I'm not ready to make the decision, is in fact a decision. Carl F.H. Henry writes, the gospel reminds all men of an inescapable destiny in eternity based on a conclusive decision in time. Paul is going to make it abundantly clear that the choices that you make will have an effect forever. R. Kent Hughes relates this story. He says, In the middle of the night, in a small Midwest farming community, the two-story house of a young family caught fire. Quickly, everyone made their way through the smoke-filled house, out into the front yard. Everyone except a five-year-old boy. The father looked up to the boy's room, and he saw his son crying at the window, rubbing his eyes as the fire grew closer and closer. And the father knew better than to reenter the house to rescue his son. So he he said, son, jump, I'll catch you. And between sobs, the boy continued to rub his eyes. He continued to listen to the voice that he knew so well. And the little boy screamed, but I can't see you. And the father said, with great assurance, no, son, you can't. But I can see you jump. 
And the boy jumped. And he was safe in his father's arms. I want you to think this through. The boy had faith in his father. But when he jumped, he made a commitment. You see, you might have faith in the Bible and faith in Jesus and faith or confidence in the preacher or faith in what your mother and and your father have told you about Jesus. But you've never jumped. You've never jumped. You're rubbing your eyes and you can feel the heat growing hotter and harder. You understand that the world is on fire and that a choice has to be made. Through the smoke. You hear the voice of Jesus. Crying out to you. Believe me. Trust me. Experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I'm going to give each of you a chance to do exactly that. The worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing a song. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to stand with me. And we're going to sing a song and we're going to close our service. But the truth is. There might be someone here. Who has a measure of faith. But they've never made a commitment. They've read the Bible. And they've heard the stories. But they've never jumped. Into the arms of Jesus. I'm going to give you that opportunity as we sing this song. If you need to know him and love him. If you need to experience that forgiveness and that transformation. Remember this isn't something that I've made up. This plan was, has its origin in the heart of God and in the testimony of Jesus and in the reality of all that Jesus has done. That's you. You just stand right here in front of this pulpit as we sing. And I'll pray with you. And your life will be changed. And so will your future. Let's sing.